this is Candace Pringle, lead pastor of FE Church, and this is our podcast. All right, unqualified number two today. Two weeks ago, we began the story of Gideon from the book of Judges. We looked at his conversation with an angel of the Lord where he was, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but still doing the right thing, right? We, we looked at his anger in that moment, how he expressed that to this angel, uh, but maybe that anger wasn't such a bad thing, right? Maybe, maybe, in fact, that anger was the only thing that did qualify him for a job that he was otherwise fully unqualified for. Maybe having those conversations with God, even when you're blaming the wrong things or the wrong people, maybe those conversations are still a good thing. I think we all need to get a little bit more fired up about certain things, actually. If you missed it, check out that message on the FE podcast or on YouTube. I think it will, it will really minister to you. But this week, we're going to continue the story of Gideon from Judges chapter 6 and 7. First, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever asked God for a sign? Right, like, I don't know. God, if I'm supposed to do this, give me all green lights on the way to work this morning. Right? Or when I wake up in the morning, let this happen. Or uh, let everybody be kind to me. Or let me see all green hats this morning. I don't know. Something crazy, something off the wall. Have you ever asked God for a sign? We ask God for these things a lot. And, and actually... I kind of want you to see through this that you're not alone in asking God for signs. God, if this happens tomorrow, I'll know I need to do this. Or if if I'm supposed to do this, let this happen, right? Let everything fall into place. I I actually don't think it's such a bad thing. It's very common for the Israelites throughout the centuries, actually, to leave things up to chance, sort of, and, and to let God decide, basically. They would cast lots for a lot of things. Actually, uh, they asked God for signs. It wasn't so uncommon. The difference today, the only difference that I can see in the word, is that we now have the Holy Spirit within us, guiding us, directing us. They did not. So we don't do this quite as often anymore as they did back in the day. Like They casted lots. They left things up to chance. It's not altogether necessary today. We have the Holy Spirit guiding us internally. The Holy Spirit, meant to be living inside of us, gently guiding us, giving us nudges, pushes, convicting, encouraging, and showing us the way, right? I think we also do it less now, though, because there's this passage in the New Testament. Jesus sort of dressed down the Pharisees when they kept asking for signs, right? Do you know this passage? Uh, They were asking Jesus, "We, we just need a sign to know that you're the Messiah. But Jesus had given signs. Even in that conversation, he had just gotten done doing miracles, lots of them. And here the Pharisees are presenting themselves, still asking for signs, but rejecting all of the ones that Jesus was giving. And he said to them, this wicked generation asks for signs, but no more will be given, except the sign of Jonah, which is, of course, to say that Jesus would die and be resurrected three days later. Jesus wasn't saying that anyone who asks for a sign is wicked, right? But that those who keep asking for signs and rejecting the ones given might be wicked, right? It's not that God doesn't give signs and and it's not that he resents those who ask. It's that he gives lots of signs, actually. And people who ask for more, they're just missing them. 
In Gideon's story, I, I actually see him asking for three signs, but being given four. After the conversation between Gideon and the angel that we read last week, at the beginning of Judges chapter 6, Gideon replies, and we're, we're looking at 6 verse Goodness, chapter 6, verse 17, Gideon replies, if you are truly going to help me, show me a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. How familiar does that sound, right? Was that God or was that just my own brain? <laughs> Am I telling myself to do this or are you God, right? I need a sign to prove that it is really the Lord speaking to me. Don't go away until I come back and I bring my offering to you. So sign number one, right? The angel says yes. He stays until Gideon returns. And he receives the offering from Gideon with fire. He touches his staff to the offering. It lights up with fire, and then he disappears. Gideon realizes in this moment that this is unique. Not just anybody can come with a staff and light things on fire with it and then disappear into thin air, right? This is a unique moment. It's not just a man sent from God, but God himself that showed up. So then God tells him, okay, it's me speaking, right? We've verified this got the little check mark next to my name. We've been verified. So then God tells him, tear down the Asherah pole, which to be honest, I regretted researching last week. I don't know if you've ever done any research into Old Testament gods because Asherah is a fertility god and therefore a pole stuck up in the middle of town, really just part of the male anatomy. And I will let you imagine or not imagine the rest. (laughs) He's supposed to tear this down anyway. Uh, so, and he sets up an altar to God with what he tears down. He does it under the cover of night because Judges 6 verse 27 literally says, I'm going to read this. He was afraid of the other members of his father's household. He was afraid of them and the people of the town. So he does this afraid. And sure enough, the next morning, the people searched for the person who had cut down their altar and wanted to kill him. His father defended him. And didn't let the people kill Gideon by saying, let Baal defend himself. And so from then on, Gideon was called Jerub Baal, or literally meaning let Baal defend himself. Which I know doesn't sound like much in English, but I imagine it to be like some epic, awesome sounding name like Demon Slayer or like, you know, Devil Killer or something like that. It was this nickname that like created some notoriety. Right? He became known as the Demon Slayer or something epic like that. Drew Bale was now his new name. Everybody called him that. Even the Bible says it multiple times and, and says that is Gideon, right? That was the guy who was willing to take on a God, right? He was tempting fate. He was so sure of himself and his God, the God of Israel, that he was able to take on Baal. That's how he was seen. Created some buzz, some stir, some notoriety for him around camp. And I think this is actually a significant detail because I think it's actually the thing that ended up shifting culture around this Israelite town. This is the thing. I think that Israelite people started to look at Gideon with a little bit of awe. Like, who is this guy? Right? They, They, rather than looking at him with ridicule, which he felt, He said to the angel, I'm the lowest of the low. I'm the least of my family and the least clan in the whole town, right? We're the least of the least. God shifted that. They started looking at him in awe rather than ridicule. This was the thing that created some wonder around town and and created some doubt in the hearts of the previous Baal worshipers. 
Because Baal didn't defend himself, right? Let Baal defend himself. So Gideon became a walking reminder to the town that Baal was a nobody and the God of Israel was the somebody, okay? God uses all kinds of things to change the hearts of people. Don't underestimate even the little things, even something as simple as a nickname. In this case, it became, in this case, it became something as powerful as fame in that town, okay? It's important because fame is something a lot of people in our culture hope for or wish for, right? They want people to see them as someone to be looked up to, an influencer, But it's important to remember that God does give fame. He does. It's a tool to be used for his purposes, not for our own. Please remember this detail later. God gave Gideon this nickname. God did this. He created some fame for Gideon. Gideon didn't do it all on his own. And he didn't do it without a few signs. Okay? So soon afterward, armies of three neighboring areas formed an alliance against Israel and came to march against them. Judges 6, verse 34 says, Then the Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. He blew a ram's horn as a call to arms, and the men of the clans Abizer, of the clan of Abizer came to him. Spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. Let me tell you why this encouraged me this week. Gideon was clothed with power from the very Spirit of the Lord, which is the Holy Spirit, right? Whom we now know, that's what he does. He clothes us with power. He gives power, love, and a sound mind. That's what the Holy Spirit does. It encouraged me so much because I have experienced that same power from the Holy Spirit and still been afraid too. Gideon was still afraid even after the Holy Spirit clothed him with power. I think that most people think that once they get baptized in the Holy Spirit or once God calls them to something in particular, then they won't feel fear anymore. They'll just be able to launch into it, right? Knowing that God sent them and so it will succeed. And I wish I could tell you that was the case. I really do. But in my experience, God has given me a fire in my belly before, and that's how I describe it. There's this power, there's this, this urge, this passion, this fire in my belly to do something And I have still been afraid. That fire in my belly is just there to let me know that I have to do whatever God is asking me to do. It won't go away. Other urges, other, you know, inklings, whatever, things I think that I should do, they go away pretty easily if I just ignore them for a little bit. But that fire in my belly from the Holy Spirit, it doesn't go away if I ignore it. It gets more intense right? It's there to let me know that I have to do whatever God is asking me to do, but it doesn't always take the fear away. It doesn't always take the fear away. It drives me forward, that passion. It makes the path clear sometimes, too. I know exactly what I have to do, but it doesn't always take the fear away. In fact, in my case, he rarely takes the fear away. Actually, probably in my case, I've never is a more accurate word. (laughs) He never fully takes the fear away. From the outside looking in, it might appear that way. And I think that's why we see some people medicating fear away. We think it has to be gone. We shouldn't have to feel it in order to move forward, right? Because we think other people are moving forward. They don't have fear, and so something must be wrong with me. True, some people don't have as much fear, but everyone has some. 
We live in, in this world between two gardens, right? This imperfect world before eternity. Everyone has some fear. Maybe you dealt with it a long time ago, but you've dealt with it. And courage is sort of like faith in that way. It must be built. Now, in my case, I dealt with a lot of fear growing up, and little by little, not all at once, little by little, I conquered it. There were very small victories at first. I told you all I had social anxiety growing up, and my small victories would sometimes be just saying hi first. It sounds silly now, but it's a small victory. Once I got a little bit of victory under my belt, and I knew I could do it, then I tried a new one. And I stretched myself a little bit at a time. It's called stacking victories. You know you can do the next thing because you've done the last thing. In fact, in God's kingdom, the reward for your last victory is another challenge. It just works that way. I think God was doing this with Gideon here. He was teaching him a little bit at a time, leading him a little bit at a time. God could see what was coming. Gideon only saw the Asherah pole. God knew there was more that he was going to use Gideon for, but Gideon had to conquer this first, and he had to know that he could do it. Once he knew that he could do something small, even under the cover of night when no one was watching, he knew he could do something a lot bigger that everyone was going to be watching. Remember, God is a good shepherd. He leads us according to our abilities and our comfort zones. That's not to say that he always operates in our comfort zones. In fact, I would say he always operates just outside of our comfort zone, just outside of it, pulling you little at a time outside of your comfort zone. I have been in ministry for 14 years this year, my 14th year, and I would say those leaps are drastically bigger. They drastically increase when you put yourself in ministry to others. But even before that, just generally following Jesus, he was always stretching me. And we know Gideon was afraid again, just like he was with the Asherah pole, because he asks God for two more signs. Okay, Gideon, then Gideon said to God, Judges 6, verse 36, then Gideon said to God, if you are truly going to use me to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me this way. I will put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. If the fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry, then I will know that you're going to help me rescue Israel, as you promised. And that is just what happened. When Gideon got up early the next morning, he squeezed the fleece and wrung out a whole bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, please don't be angry with me, but let me make one more request. <laughs> right? You would have thought that Gideon would have been fully convinced after the first sign that he asked for happened. Right? He was the one that said, then I will know. Then I will know that you're going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. He said that. But did he? Did he know? He still had doubts. We still have doubts. We do this all the time. I have found this to be true in like every Christian story somewhere. <laughs> right? I think this, this comes back to what we talked about on Rewind Weekend with the story of Mary how she treasured things in her heart, and that's probably what got her through the crazy times ahead, but like we forget so easily, and then we dismiss this movement of God so easily. We forget what he's done in the past, and so what he's doing now, we dismiss. Oh, that must have been something else. Maybe that was just, you know, the weather. Something else happened. Maybe I got up too late. 
right? The, the sun had already dried the grass, and it just didn't dry the fleece. I, I, right? We make all these excuses. Maybe I just happen to get green lights on my way to work this morning. Could that really be you, God? We've only made this easier in recent years. Science is the study of the way the world works, and so we think that since we know how it works, we know all there is to know about it, right? We know that a seed dies in the ground before it is reborn, so we know, we, we get it, right? Do we know how? What magic happens within a dead seed to bring it back to life? Can science explain that truly? God, well, I mean, we know. Do scientists know? We know that, that God is who makes life. He is the source of all life, right? And so he makes it grow, but you can't quantify that. How do you nail that down? And even more so in very recent years when everything is fake news, right? And nobody believes anything. Everybody has their own source of news, right? And their own news outlet. And all of it is provable, both sides. So nothing is provable, Right? So we have a hard time believing even our own signs, even the ones that we asked for, a hard time knowing, was it, was it the medicine that healed me or was it God? Was it the psychology that put my brain back together? Was it God? Even when we have it in our hands, I, I brought in my most fleece-like blanket because he physically had the evidence in his hand, this wasn't a, a green light situation, a like abstract concept. It was physical. It was dripping with water. He could wring it out, and he still questioned it. And we do this all. Was it was it just the fact that I've been tithing for the last year that all the blessings that I have, right? Or, or was it just coincidence? Was it just just because? I know there's this temptation, right, to look at your tithe statement. I've been handing out these giving statements all week. To look at that statement and say, wow, like all the money I could have had if I hadn't given it to the church. When you should be saying, wow, I, I wish I could give more to God because of all that he's given me. Or wow, I, I, looking back, God has blessed me with so much this year. It's all because of this tiny amount of money that I give to him. Your attitude there, when, when you're asking God for proof, shows your heart. Do you have a heart that, that is selfish with God? A heart that needs to know that you know that you know. A heart that needs to be convinced, but also can never be fully convinced. No matter how much evidence is provided. This is what Jesus was talking about when he was talking about a wicked generation. All right, the Pharisees had to be convinced, but could never be convinced. Whereas a person who has even mustard seed-sized faith can be convinced with a sign that's almost nothing. If you really had faith, you would be obedient without evidence on the front end. If you really had faith, you would tithe. To keep using that example, give 10% of your income to your local storehouse, which is the church, and you would trust God with the rest. That's what faith does. By the way, the church wouldn't even exist without people who tithe, right? This church, you know, we've had a rough couple of years. COVID years have been tough, but you know how we're still standing through all of that? A faithful 20% of attenders who actually give 10% of their income. 
many, many more Christians only give a teensy tiny amount of their income into the mission and the calling of the church. They take from the church, but they don't give into it. It's still standing because of a faithful few who trust God without the evidence, without needing to have the evidence. The bottom line is, is we want a place to go and worship on Sunday mornings, right? You have to give into it to keep that alive. You, and I'm only talking about the, you know, non-tithers here. We only get to come into the house of worship because of, of the few that do give their 10%. The lights stay on, the staff is paid, the mortgage is up to date. We don't get to come into the house of God to be fed every week, to be encouraged, hear amazing music, connect with others, get some free coffee, right? Marvel at the wonder and the word of who God is. We get to come into church because of their faith. The obedient ones, the ones that only have a mustard seed-sized faith. People who decided they didn't need to wait for everything to be perfect. They didn't need to wait for that promotion or that inheritance or that lotto ticket to come through before they could trust God. Just decided to be obedient and trust God with the rest. I'm using this example both because the church needs more faithful and obedient people to step up and tithe or just to be really honest with you. A lot of churches aren't making it through this third COVID year, right? That's the honest facts that we need to know. We might not have a Freedom Valley to come to if we cannot make ends meet after all the savings and all the COVID years, right? It's not my job as pastor to resource all the ministry. It's my job as pastor to lead you all in resourcing all of the ministry, and you have to know the facts to do that. But I'm also using this example because it's something that we ask for in signs a lot. Finances are oftentimes the last spiritual discipline that disciples conquer (laughs) because it goes so much to your core. How I provide for myself, how I feed my family comes from our finances. And it's because we're like, God, do I really have to? They say all the time we get to give. We don't have to give at church. That's because it's about the heart. And God actually does require tithing. It's something we have to, we don't just have to do, we get to. That's the heart behind it. But God, do I really have to? If you just give me that raise, then I'll be able to tithe. If you just give me a better job, then I'll be able to tithe. But the thing is, if you're waiting for a sign, will you even see it when it comes? You have to wait for a sign to be obedient. Will you really see it when it comes? If you have to wait for a sign to be obedient, will you ever be obedient? One of my childhood pastors, Pastor Marv, some of you remember him, he used to always say, delayed obedience is not obedience. Delayed obedience is not obedience. Obedience is right away. I obey right away. If you're waiting for a sign... Will you ever? We don't need more than the word. The word is enough. God gave us 66 books written down of his actual word. And so many examples of him coming through for us over and over and over. Why do we need more than that? Why do we need green lights on the way to work? Why do we need the fleece? We don't actually need more than that. If you're waiting for God to bless you first, why should he? And yet, he does. 
And yet he does. God does give signs. He does. The story of Gideon only proves that he does give signs. But the thing is, if you're waiting for it, will you see it when it comes? If you really had faith, would you just believe without a sign and obey without a sign? This is what I realized this week, actually. Faithful people, they still look for the signs, but it's after obeying, not before. Faithful people actually look for the signs after obeying, later, after they've done what they've been called to do, then they sit and they wait. They look for what God is going to do. They treasure up the things in their heart of the faithfulness of God. They keep gratitude lists, right? They, they thank God for the things that he's done in the past. They create mementos. They keep coming back even when they don't feel like it. They read their Bible even when it feels like no revelation is going to come. They keep praying when it feels like they're hitting a wall. No, their prayers aren't getting answered. And they keep tithing even when they can't see the blessings yet. Because they know that God will. He will send the signs. He will send the blessings. He will send the confirmation of everything you've been hoping for. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for the evidence of things we cannot see. It is the, the not yet portion of our faith. It is that we are living in the now of what God has given us and also the not yet, that there is more to come. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things we cannot see. It is believing in something even when we can't make sense of it. Believing enough to do something about it. Gideon's not quite there yet in our story. He had two signs by now. The angel stayed, and the fleece was wet. Right? He's done one thing correctly, and he lived to tell the, tell the tale, but he's not, he's not quite there yet. Okay, The fleece was wet, but, but what if that was just coincidence? What if that was just because of the weather that night, or he slept in too late that day? I'm, I'm taking a big risk here, God, right? This is life and death here. I need to know that I know that I know that I know. He's physically holding the proof in his hand, a wet fleece, and yet he's still asking for more proof. Verse 39, let me use the fleece for one more test. This time, let the fleece remain dry while the ground around it is wet with dew. That couldn't possibly happen naturally, right? So that night, God did just as Gideon asked. The fleece was dry in the morning, but the ground was covered with dew. I just love that God did it. And God does what Gideon asks. He didn't have to provide him another sign, but he did provide him with yet another sign. God is so patient with us, so generous with us, so understanding of, uh, of us. We are not nearly so generous and understanding with others. Sometimes I, don't, I wonder how God stands it. <laughs> There is so much clouding our judgment, so much making us forget our bodies crave so many things it shouldn't have on such a regular basis. Our world is so full of evil and, and strife and selfishness that it can be hard to see the good, the blessings, and the selflessness in the face of it. But that's why we're called to perseverance. And Jesus said, in this life, you will have trouble. You might have trouble. You may have trouble. Could be some trouble lying around. No, you will have trouble, but take heart, right? 
for I have already overcome the world. We have to constantly remind ourselves that is the, the spiritual disciplines. That is coming to church regularly, right? We constantly encourage ourselves, constantly remind ourselves. We do that with daily worship, daily prayer, daily being in the word. We do that with weekly rest, with soul friendship. We do that with fasting. We do that with tithing. We do that with silence and listening and being still in the presence of the Lord. We do that by disciplining ourselves. That's the spiritual disciplines. I have a list of all of them in the sermon notes today. Because even when God gives you power, as in the case of Gideon, we still have to overcome fear. Spiritual disciplines are the practice of overcoming fear even before you are scared. Because honestly, that is the time to practice. And not when you need to, but before you need to. So you're ready for the next challenge. So many people come to Jesus in times of crisis. What if we came to him before the crisis and then we're prepared for the crisis? Right, a house made on rock still gets pelted with storms. It just stands in the end. It doesn't get blown over, right? You don't have to start over again after the storm is gone. You're still standing. Gideon was so afraid, but you know what? God used even that. Tim Edwards reminded me of this after last two weeks ago's sermon. God used his fear. Gideon was still afraid, but God used even that. Just like I believe God used Gideon's anger from two weeks ago, God also used Gideon's fear. Let me show you what I mean. Judges 7, verse 1 says, So Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and his army got up early and went as far as the spring of Herod. The armies of Midian were camped north of them in the valley of the hill near Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many warriors with you. What now? You got to love when God says you have too much support, too, too much backup, too many blessings, Gideon. We need to strip some of this away. Right? This is why you have to be a, a little bit skeptical of people who make blanket statements about God, like God would never remove good people from your life. That must be the enemy. Wouldn't he, though? Didn't he hear or like, you know, blanket statements you see all around the internet, like healthy things grow. True, but healthy things also shed their leaves every year and they look like they're dying for a while every fall, right? Like <laughs> there's wisdom. God gives us layers of truth. There is wisdom in things. Sometimes God strips healthy things so they look really awful, like really awful unprepared things for a while so that you know it was God who pro provided the victory and no one else. It is Dangerous theology to put God in a box like that. So when God says, you have too many warriors with you, I'm likely to come back and say, mm, that must be Satan. And swipe that thought away. Right? That's got to be the enemy talking. God would give me more warriors, not less, surely. And yet it is God saying, you have too many warriors with you. If I let you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they have saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid may leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 of them went home, leaving only 10,000 who were willing to fight. 22,000. Can you imagine seeing a stream of 22,000 people leaving you? 
on the battlefield? 22,000. Here's my theory, though. I think that the 10,000 left were probably also just as afraid, just willing to overcome it. I think they were courageous through and through, right? They were the courageous ones who knew fear but overcame it. They knew fear because I, I think that they knew fear because of what happens later. They knew how to create fear as well. But they weren't controlled by fear. Two very different things. I know because I've lived both. I used to be controlled by fear. Now I control it. Doesn't mean I don't feel it still. I feel it. I just control it. I do things afraid. I don't let it force me to run away or to make excuses to not do whatever it is I'm scared of. I just do it afraid. I bet the 10,000 left felt fear, just chose to overcome it. But there are 10,000 left, and God still thinks it's too many. Remember, this isn't a surprise to God. God knew exactly how many men he needed, and he knew exactly what would happen. So he's not doing this for his benefit, right? He's doing this for Gideon. This is an object lesson for Gideon not for his own sake. There's something here that Gideon needs to realize. So verse four, but the Lord told Gideon, still too many, (laughs) there's still too many. Bring them down to the spring and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his warriors down to the water, the Lord told him, divide the men into two groups. In one group, put all those who cup water in their hands and lap it up with their tongues like dogs. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths the stream. Only 300 of the men drank from their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, just imagine you're making sections of people, right? And you're like, surely God's going to send the 300 home and I'm going to have all these guys left, right? The Lord told Gideon, with these 300 men, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send all the others home. So Gideon collected the provisions and ram's horns of the other warriors, and he sent them home. But he kept the 300 with him. Can you just imagine how that felt for a second? (sighs) Going from 32,000 men to 300. 300 men against an entire three cities worth of armies. All he had was 300 men, some food, and some ram's horns. I don't know what a ram's horn sounds like, but it can't be that intimidating. Must have felt very overwhelming and scary. But remember that God is a multiplying God. Right? And he doesn't do, he doesn't let anything go to waste. Even when you only give God two fishes and, and five loaves, or five loaves and two fishes, he doesn't let anything go to waste, right? He can feed thousands of people with just that. Of course, Gideon didn't know that story yet, but we do. Gideon would have known, though, that God fed his people for 40 years out in the wilderness through manna from heaven. Gideon did know that God parted the Red Sea for his people and crushed their enemies under the waves. And Gideon should have known that God provided victory after victory in the wilderness when the people were being obedient. 
He should have known the stories of his ancestors. Abraham's story, Isaac's story, Jacob's story. He should have known. We all should know, right? These are things we should know, that we should encourage ourselves with when we get scared. We all should have enough faith. If you listed all the ways that God has come through for you in the past, if you listed all the Bible stories that you know and how God came through for them, would you have enough faith then? The Midianite camp was in the valley just below Gideon. Verse 9, that night the Lord said, get up. Go down into the Midianite camp, for I have given you victory over them. And I love verse 10. But if you're afraid to attack, but if you are afraid to attack, God gave Gideon this fourth sign. Gideon didn't even ask for this one. God gave him a sign, which I just find to be the most graceful and kind thing God could have done. God could see Gideon, right? I'm sure he was sweating bullets in that camp, right? He was probably pacing and talking himself out of it and going through all the contingencies. He probably counted the men a couple of times. Is it really still only 300? He's probably freaking out. But if you are afraid to attack, did God, let me ask you this. Does God ever need to use the word if? If you are afraid. God said, if you are afraid. Would God not have known that Gideon was indeed afraid or not? Of course he would have. So was that if there for God's benefit or Gideon's? God is so graceful. Gave him the benefit of a doubt, even though he had no doubt. Gave him some dignity, even in fear. That's what he does. Jesus gave us back our dignity on that cross. Even in our fear, he clothes us with dignity. And so he gives us, he gives Gideon this fourth sign, even though Gideon did not ask this time. There was no fleece throwing out. The the pressure was on. He was on the battlefield with 300 men up obviously in the middle of the night, worrying. And God says, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant, Pura. Listen to what the Midianites are saying and you will be greatly encouraged. Then you will be eager to attack. But he's still reluctant now. Still doubting a little bit. Still letting fear control him by not getting a good sleep on the night before a battle. Now, the Holy Spirit gives us power. He gives us love. He gives us a sound mind. The Holy Spirit knows what we need to hear when we need to hear it. The Holy Spirit leads us in so many different ways. He's always so surprising. And just like we said two weeks ago, God doesn't change Gideon here. God doesn't change the enemy. And yet, here Gideon is, becoming eager to attack where he was once afraid, just by eavesdropping. (laughs) Here's the sign. So Gideon took Pura and went down to the edge of the enemy camp. The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east had settled in the valley like like a swarm of locusts. 
Their camels were like grains of sand on the seashore, too many to count. Gideon crept up just as a man was telling his companion about a dream. The man said, I had this dream, and in my dream, a loaf of barley bread came tumbling down into the Midianite camp. It hit a tent, turned it over, and knocked it flat. To me, that sounds like just any dream, right? It's just a dream. But his companion answered, your dream can only mean one thing. God has given Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite, victory over us Midianites and all of our allies. They take it as a negative sign. Gideon just overhears this and takes it as his sign, his, his V sign, right? When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed in worship before the Lord. To me, isn't that like a slap in the face to God? And I had to sit back and think about this sign for a while. Like Gideon had the word of the Lord. He had the fleece. He had the word of the living God. Three signs now. He was three signs deep. But he wasn't eager to attack until he heard the enemy say it. But God is so good that he knew what Gideon needed to hear and he still led him to it. I, I just can't get over the graciousness of God in this story. I think I, I usually hear the story of Gideon preach in such a way that's all about victory and God proving that he can provide victory even with a little bit of resources. But what I see in the story is the incredible, overwhelming grace of God the unending grace of God. Gideon was not courageous. He was not particularly gifted or qualified or even full of character. He was angry about the right things, but at the wrong people. And he was afraid on top of it. But God used his inadequacies. God used his unqualifications to lead Israel to victory here. Not for the sake of Gideon, but for the sake of his people. God's people. And this is where I think leaders go wrong sometimes. Leaders, somewhere along the line, we think that God blesses us. The leader thinks that God blesses them because they are so awesome. When in reality, sometimes God blesses you as a leader, not because you deserve it so much, but because God loves the people you're leading. He is full of grace. Verse 15. Then he returned to the Israelite camp and shouted, Get up, for the Lord has given you victory over the Midianite hordes. He divided the 300 men into three groups and gave each man a ram's horn and a clay jar with a torch in it. See, for some reason, I always read this story. I had it in my head that this was God's idea. I guess it may have been because the Bible doesn't actually say either way, but we see a lot of what God says to Gideon here, and this idea isn't one of them. I think God empowered Gideon to use something that he already had within him. To use an unqualification. A negative aspect of Gideon's character. Let's read the rest and then I'll explain. Verse 17 says, Then he said to them, Keep your eyes on me. When I come to the edge of the camp, do just as I do. As soon as I and those with me blow the ram's horns, blow your horns too, all around the camp, and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. Remember, it's still night. It was just after midnight, after the changing of the guard, when Gideon and his 100 men with him reached the edge of the Midianite camp. Suddenly they blew the ram's horns and broke their clay jars. 
Then all three groups blew their horns and broke their jars. They held the blazing torches in their left hand and the horns in their right hands, and they all shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic. See, usually in armies, ancient armies, one guy leading a whole bunch of men is the one with the torch and the clay jar. The fact that every man had it tricked the enemy army into thinking there were a whole lot more men than there were. Okay? Each man stood at his position around the camp and watched as all the Midianites rushed around in a panic, shouting as they ran to escape. When the 300 Israelites blew their ram's horns, the Lord caused the warriors in the camp to fight against each other with their swords. Those who were not killed fled to places far away. Remember last week when I said God wasn't going to change Gideon and he wasn't going to change the enemy. He was only going to change perception. And didn't he do it? Right? And God used something Gideon inherently understood. Fear. To find victory over their oppressors. Fear. The the very thing that Gideon probably thought disqualified him. God used even that. The very thing I used to disqualify myself all the time. God used it. God used Gideon's anger to call him. That anger in the wine press, he used that to call him into ministry. And his fear he used to fulfill that calling. God can use even our imperfections. (laughs) We don't have to be perfect to follow him. We just have to be obedient. Gideon could have chickened out instead of tearing down that Asherah pole in the middle of the night. He didn't. He just did it afraid. Gideon could have chickened out when the tens of thousands of soldiers were walking away. He didn't. He did it with 300 soldiers, and he did it afraid. Fear does not disqualify you for service in the kingdom. In fact, I actually now think that fear is a pretty good qualifier, not a disqualifier. Because when you are afraid, you know you can't rely on just you. When you're afraid, you know you can't do this on your own. When you're afraid, you're more likely to be humble. And God can use the humble. Just like anger doesn't disqualify you because God can use passion. Right? You have to decide that you want it more than you are afraid of it. You have to decide to not disqualify yourself all the time. That if God calls you qualified, you are. You do not have to be fearless for God to use you. Doing it afraid is just as brave. Doing it afraid is also oftentimes just as effective. Most people don't know you're afraid. Sometimes the fear won't go away and you have to do it anyway. Do it afraid. The important thing is not to let fear stop you completely. To not let fear keep you down, keep you oppressed, keep you at the bottom of that wine press doing twice as much work as you have to. To not let fear keep you angry and and bitter and let fear isolate you. To to not let fear keep you enslaved. Because it will. It wants you enslaved. Our job to keep moving, to keep putting one foot in front of the other, even when you're scared. Keep reaching out to people, even when they've hurt you. 
Keep tithing even when you don't know how it makes sense. Keep reading the word even when you don't understand it. Keep praying even when you're afraid of what God will say. Do it afraid. God honors that. God will help you through it. Do you know even Jesus experienced fear? In the garden, sweating blood, asking God to find any other way. Now, please take this cup from me. Ultimately, your will be done. Now, he did it afraid. Jesus did it afraid. He experienced human emotions like anger and fear. He didn't just, he didn't let those emotions control his behavior, though. He didn't make it selfish or all about him. He overruled those emotions and acted on my behalf instead of his own. He acted on your behalf. We're called to live for others, not just for ourselves. We're called to be selfless in this world full of selfishness. And isn't that enough? I sometimes think that series like this in a Pentecostal church, charismatic church, we tend to just center around what you're called to do. You're called to grow the church, to witness to others, to ministry, to, to do one thing. We, we often make it sound like we're called to do one thing, to fulfill one purpose in life. But what if it's much more broad than that? What if it, it's just about living a selfless life, a passionate life? What if God is trying to get us to redefine purpose in our lives, to, to redefine progress in our lives? What if a bigger army isn't what God is calling us to? What happens, in fact, when we confuse just having a bigger army with listening to God? What happens when we only see the results and not the process of getting the results? What happens when we begin to worship victory and not the God of victory? What if God's not calling you to up and move to India and be a missionary, but he is calling you to a new level of selflessness in this world, a new level of servanthood, uh, one where you can overcome your fears of judgment, your fears of not being accepted, your fears of rejection, and serve other people anyway. One where you can express new levels of passion to God. Express your anger and your doubts and your fears directly to him and allow him to birth new passions within you. New ways to serve your people. Jesus modeled this so perfectly for us. He, he laid down his life for us. Now it's our turn. We are called to do the same now, you've probably heard sermons before like this saying, you know, you are free from fear. I heard those sermons growing up, and I walked away from those every time saying, I'm not, though. I still feel it. What happens when I'm not free from it yet? I still feel it every day. What's wrong with me? The story of Gideon teaches us that it's okay to still feel it. 95% of the steps forward I have taken both in my faith and in my effectiveness for God have been taken while afraid, not in the absence of it. Do it afraid. The selfishness that is sin is easy. It's not usually the scarier option. It's the easier option. 
Selflessness can be very scary. Even when God is with you, even when the Holy Spirit is with you, but he does give you power, love, and a sound mind. He is with you, not just for you. He gives you all of the tools you need to do what he is calling you to do, but also to be who he is calling you to be. Sometimes we just have to do it afraid. He can use your fear, your anger, and your doubts. And today, we're going to bow our heads. We're going to pray. We're going to ask him to be in that moment. We're going to give those emotions to him. Will you do that with me? Father, we bow our heads. We bow our hearts to you. Not as an act that, you know, we are, are ashamed or stuck in fear, but that we are submissive to you. That we recognize your authority in our lives. And we choose to put ourselves firmly under that authority. And God, we realize that we are not the best judges, the, the best uh, controllers of our lives. I'm not the best decision maker. That you know me better than anyone, than, than I know myself. And I trust you to make the decisions. God, help me trust you to make the decisions. Thank you that you included verses and passages in the word like this. That you included the father begging for healing for his daughter of Jesus. Healing for his kid. And he said, I believe, but, but help my unbelief. I want to believe desperately the tiny amount of faith. God, help me believe more. Help me overcome fear, even if that means I have to live with it for a while. Help me do it afraid. God, clothe us today. I, I just speak over this church, over everyone hearing my voice, that you would just breathe power, love, a sound mind, self-control, that you would breathe your fruits of the Spirit into us. That we would be able to rise up with vibrancy, with passion, with selflessness in our world. That we'd be able to go out into the world doing whatever you've called us to that day. And that God, most of all, that we would get up in the mornings, not with our own laundry list of, of to-do tasks and things we were asking for your blessing on, but that we would get up in the morning and say, God, what do you have for me today? What can I do for you today. Use me, God. We would acknowledge that use me, God, is one of the most courageous prayers we can pray. God, use us. Use us. Bring out gifts and talents within this body. I would minister to the world around us. We'd minister to each other, love each other, serve each other. And then take that same spirit out into the world. That our friends, our family, our coworkers would feel that something is different with us. We are living a life truly for others. Laying aside our pride. Stepping over it. Around it. Acting out in spite of it. We're stepping out in your power. In your love. In your self-control. God, clothe us. Clothe us with courage, with joy, with peace. Help us know that we are the church. The church is not this building, this 
these four walls, but that we are the church and we take the church with us wherever we go. So if, if you've called us to be a peace bringer, a, a joy giver, that we would take that with us, that every place that we go would then be a house of peace, a house of joy, that we would be the temperature setters, the thermostats in the room instead of the receivers of that. We wouldn't let the world influence us anymore that we would truly be influencers, that you would set us up for fame to be used for you and you alone. God, use us in this world. Heads bowed and eyes still closed. Maybe today you're saying, I, I'm like you. I, I'm hearing this message and saying, but I still feel fear. I feel stuck in fear. And sometimes that all it takes is for you to admit that to God. Say, look, I, I want to do something for you. I want to do something big for you. I want to lead somebody to Jesus. I want to tell somebody about Jesus. I, I want to be selfless in my world. I want to serve my neighbors and my coworkers and break out of who I was and become somebody new. I, I want to do that. I'm so afraid. And maybe it's a new spiritual discipline. I feel like God is calling you to tithe or God is calling you to fast or to... Do a Bible plan. Read through it in a year. Maybe he's calling you to some new discipline. But you're afraid. And we, we know from this story it's okay to be afraid. Tell God. Ask him to be in that moment. Just like with the anger. If we just let him in on it, he can help. If that's you today, I'd just like to know who I'm praying for. Would you just raise your hand? I still feel Fear, I'm dealing with fear on some level. I'd like to pray for you today. Father, we thank you and praise you for each and every hand raised, for each and every heart open to what you want to do. God, help us do it afraid. Help us step out, that knowing that you operate just outside our comfort zone, that that would just empower us, that we'd be able to step over that line and into what you have for us. I want to take it just, just a step further. If you're here today and you've never made a decision for Jesus, you know, if, you, if you maybe you've been around church, you've believed in God, but you've never actually stepped over that line and said, Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me. Help me live a life for you and not for myself anymore that's you, I don't want to leave today without giving you that opportunity to. If you would say, I'm in. I'm in. I'm into following Jesus. I'm in for a lifestyle change. I'm into figuring out what this faith thing is all about. I'm in. If that's you, would you raise your hand if you're here in the room? I want to follow Jesus. Maybe this is a first-time decision or something you haven't said for a long time. If you're watching online today, you can text I'm in to the number on the screen or you can type I'm in in the comments as well. We'd love to help you with that decision. Thank you. Father, once again, we just ask for each and every decision made towards you. We bless it in Jesus' name. We ask that as we leave from here today, each and every one of us would feel the reality of your presence. That we don't just feel it in worship or in this house or within these four walls, but that we take your presence with us. We cannot anymore call ourselves unqualified when Jesus has called us 
qualified. We get to go out into this world, make a difference for you. God, show us who we can love this week, who we can pray for, who we can breathe peace on. Equip us, God. Encourage us. Help us do it afraid. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thing, Tom. By the way, I told you I was coming back to the fact that God was called Jerub, that Gideon was called by God Jerub Baal, right? The fact that God gave him some notoriety and some fame in this world was an important detail. The end of Gideon's story, I don't often hear preached much. He resisted leadership at first, and the people revealed The people revered him for a while. They say, oh, you delivered us from the Midianites, right? He resisted it for a while, but eventually Gideon fell into it too. Judges 8, 27 says, Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold. All the people had given him gold earrings. And he put it in Ophrah, his hometown. But soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it. And it became a trap for Gideon and his family. I only add this detail because I think sometimes we we put people on this pedestal. This this is a pure example of us worshiping victory instead of the God of victory. We tend to see the blessings and the things that God has given us as the thing then to worship rather than remembering God gave it to us in the first place. Right, this unqualified series. We begin at some point along the way to let pride sneak in. Pride is so sneaky. It sneaks in and it tricks us into thinking that we did this, that we deserve this, and that God gave it to us for our own sake. We hoard the victory. Keep it all to ourselves. That was never Israel's calling. In general, the entire calling as a people, they were never meant to hoard what God had given them for themselves. They were meant to give it to the world. That's why God was so harsh with them throughout the Old Testament. We wonder why is God so harsh with his own people? Because they they kept hoarding it. They were selfish. It's meant to be given. We only make ourselves unqualified when we hoard. And we keep it for ourselves. We keep a humble spirit, knowing that God is the one who gave it to us. We don't deserve any of it anyway, and he can use us. Amen? Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you made a decision to follow Jesus, please let us know by going to fv.church slash I am in. And remember to download our app for more content and helpful links.